0: Hello everyone, I'm Abigail Wald. And I'm Missy Pyle, and you are
1: listening to Raising and Rising. We created this podcast for parents because we're one of you, we get you, and we love you.
0: I believe that from the moment that we become a parent, we have a vision of the kind of childhood we want our children to have, and a vision of the kind of parent that we wanna be. And while we always love our children, we don't always like them or their behavior. We are here to help you reconnect with that original vision of yours and give you the tools to make it your actual reality.
1: Each episode, we talk to parents who feel that they are often getting pushed past their breaking
0: point. We give loving, constructive solutions and new ways of thinking about your everyday parenting problems so you can confidently rise up to the challenge of raising strong-willed children who thrive within themselves, within your family, and within the larger world. Welcome back to Raising and Rising. We usually talk with one parent and help them raise and rise. And today Missy and I, we wanted to be here and sort of have three mothers uh just come together and just share our feelings um and and share them as as one way of being part of this conversation for all of you. And we're really interested in hearing what you all have to say. So I'm Abigail Wald and Uh, I work with parents every single day to help them have uh, a connected relationship uh, well into the teenage years and to create people who are going to be good contributing members of society. And then my co-host is the lovely Missy Pyle.
1: Hi, friends. And then the third mother, we have Michelle Ward with us, uh, who we just did uh, her podcast yesterday, and it was a lot of fun. And. I'm just thrilled that she's a mom as well. So,
0: Michelle is a neurocriminologist, yes. And uh, do you want to explain to everybody what that means that you do?
2: Sure. So, I study neuroscience, but instead of rats and monkeys, um, we study it on the minds of violent populations, starting with children. You know, my dissertation was all on children, twins, age nine to 11 specifically looking at psychopathy and psychopathic features to understand that but really we studied any kind of violent behavior we we did it in children so that we could ascertain how much of their brain differences um were because they'd already you know once you start committing crimes things change
0: you bring up a really good point Michelle that i personally am fascinated by and i think you know our listeners are are wondering as well and as are, as are we right like it just I don't know, just everybody, I think, looking at this situation. By the way, we I don't think we've actually mentioned this. What's on our mind is the prevalence of school shooting, the prevalence of specifically young people becoming mass murderers, right? That's really what we're talking about today. Is what's happening? Why is this happening? And um, you know, I, I think you bring up this really important point, which is as we're looking at this particular situation, is this parenting? Is this temperament? Is this societal? Is this racial? Is it economical? Like like socioeconomic, right? So, is it socioeconomic? Is it? Um, you know, uh, are people getting? sort of pushed into these lives of crime? Is this a result of bullying? Is this access to guns? Is this a lack of mental health? Um, Is this mental illness from birth? Is this acquired mental illness through trauma? You know, these are the questions that I think we need to all be looking at because if we're here to solve this, we have to understand the problem. So what did you learn in your study of looking at these nine to 11 Year-old twins.
2: Well, to be honest, my my study. I got a government grant in about five minutes mm. to do this work because Columbine happened. I was in graduate school when Columbine, I just started graduate school when Columbine ha- happened, and my grant went right to the top to study violence in children. And um, one thing I want to point out that I think is really important is that, and everyone knows this, but we are the only country. For which this for th- for whom this is a problem. It has happened in other countries before, but they are one-off events. So it's. I think we have to look at it through that lens because mental illness exists absolutely everywhere, and we are one of the few countries that actually even treats it. You know, I lived in France, and they said, "Oh, and with mental illness, we tell you to go scream <laughs> at a tree." I'm like, right. "That explains some which people helpful. I've met." Um, but poor tree. But it's I, so I, we, right. It, I do enjoy the tree screaming, but, you know, it only gets you so far. So what we've learned from, okay, t- pulling it back, the, a, a larger view is that most violence has a genetic underpinning and an environmental trigger. There are some people for whom violence will never happen, no matter how bad your home life is, no matter, no matter what you've witnessed, no matter how much you're abused, you will not become criminal. There are some people, conversely, usually psychopathic individuals who become antisocial psychopaths. And we should dispel this. Psychopathy is not always a bad thing. It's not always a criminal indicator. There's a lot of really successful pro-social psychopaths. But there are certain psychopaths who, if if for them, their goal is to be criminal. There's nothing you can do to stop that unless you know when they're children.
0: What Mm -hmm. is a pro-social psychopath?
2: They are your hedge fund managers, your leaders of countries. Um, they're your surgeons. They are people who can remove the barriers, the obstacles of stressing uh, about empathy, guilt, remorse, emotion, and just go right for what they're do- trying to do. And hopefully that's pro-social. It is not, I'm not saying it's awesome to be a psychopath. I'm not, I'm just trying to elucidate the truth behind it because one out of every hundred people is a psychopath?
1: What's the definition of a psychopath, and is it is it genetic? Are you predisposed to being a psychopath, and there's nothing you can do about it?
2: Yeah, sadly it is. So def- the definition of a psychopath is somebody with blunted affect. Um, they tend to be impulsive. They're, they have all the narcissistic features. But what sets them apart from every other personality disorder is they do not experience guilt, remorse, or empathy. And in brain scans, you can see a difference in their amygdala, a couple areas of the brain where there's a little bit of a difference. So it is, we believe it's inherited in a cluster, a dominant effect, a cluster of genes, at least in my dissertation, that's what we came up with. There's been a lot of studies indicating that it is a genetically inherited um, group of traits, Um, but where the environment is so incredibly important. It doesn't matter what what you inherited gene-wise, your environment is what, creates the pro-social psychopath versus the antisocial psychopath. Serial killer versus, I don't know, a uh, free climber, you know, free climber who's a surgeon on the side. That's usually there's a high IQ associated with psychopathy as well. So success is not too hard for them. And I should say school shooters um, aren't generally that profile.
1: Okay. You just said something very, very surprising to me, which is that most school shooters are not antisocial psychopaths. No, they're antisocial, indeed, but
2: they're not necessarily psychopaths. There haven't been quite enough of them to really create an accurate profile, but they do have some things in common. And by definition, of course, you could say they lack guilt and remorse because they're able to you know, shoot innocent people, but they don't necessarily have the exact profile of a psychopath.
0: So when you say they don't lack guilt and remorse, here's a question I'm going to ask something that might seem really stupid, but don't you have guilt and remorse after the fact? And so if they haven't done something like this before, like does guilt and remorse travel backwards where like I know I'm going to have such guilt and remorse. I won't do this. Like, isn't that, isn't guilt and remorse different from being able to have a prefrontal cortex that can know what I'm going to feel? I mean, do you understand my question? And empathy are
2: things we experience. Now, little kids, toddlers are the most selfish little beasts on the planet, but you show them a video of someone else being hurt. You show them um, an animal being hurt and they can cry. They feel it. Empathy starts, it, it's not a, you don't see it in the toddlers, but they have opportunities to experience or not experience remorse, guilt and empathy well before they're committing crimes. So when I would have my nine year olds in the room, we talk about, you know, an incident when their twin got hurt or when their mom got hurt or and they laugh. You know, we didn't have that. We had thousands and thousands of children. So we had to just use the, the psychopaths so we could find Through there, and it, I mean, they're very different. They're very different from typical children. And if, and in these profiles of these school shooters, if their parents or caregivers or self reports indicate that they have not throughout time felt empathy, then they're gonna look a little bit more like a psychopath. But it doesn't just one, you don't go from being a normal, empathetic person to one day not having it anymore and, and call be called a psychopath.
0: And you're saying that looking at the profile of school shooters so far, we are not seeing that these children are kids who did not have any remorse up until now.
2: I have not. I have not gone over all the interviews. Often they're dead. But... No one, none of the researchers I have read about or read the studies, none of them has said that these are psychopaths who are starting their criminal behavior young. It's it doesn't look like that. They're more there's a there's mental illness there. There's a lot of depression and a lot of them have a common thread where they've been recently rejected or gone through something very emotional and they felt rejected. A lot of them feel unseen. And so if now they are names, they live in infamy, right?
1: And right. don't a lot of them also have ideations? Yeah.
2: I've seen it. I've definitely read about it. When you're lost, when your identity is really murky, you you can see this in younger people. You can They can get into the whole like reading the Turner Diaries. Um, it's a story. It's like a Bible for neo-Nazis. And it just kind of outlines why, you know, the white man is better and what, what you do for the white person. It's, it's a series, it's fiction, and it's didactic, teaching why, why the white race is, why white men are most important and most evolved. And, you know, it's, it's, it's written by a neo-Nazi. It's written by one of the worst racists ever. I met his son, who was one of the most damaged people I've ever talked to. And I talked to serial killers for a living.
0: I do think that there seems to be a common thread among all of these circumstances where the shooter was somehow separated from the herd, right? That there's this sense of isolation and depression. And as you are talking about on some level, these are the kids who used to be just suicidal, but now there's a rage. So it's almost like a raging suicide and there's a loudness to it. And to me, there is a thread of, you know, listen, we do have an epidemic of suicide where there are children who are deeply connected on the outside, doing really well at school, thriving in sports, you know, well um doing well academically, seem to have great groups of friends who suddenly commit suicide. This is unfortunately something that is going on that is skyrocketing. What is interesting is that person, I've never seen a profile of a mass shooter at school who fits that profile.
2: No, it's not though it's not that surprise suicide person. It's that dejected, as you said, isolated, often precipitated by a very recent trauma, like usually losing a relationship or just feeling unseen. I mean, that's what we I keep reading over and over again is that um, rejection and then a recent trauma and and a depressive style to begin with.
0: Yes, and of note also their voice. I remember speaking with Michael Gurion years ago, who has done a lot of work on, you know, the boy crisis and has been talking about for years about how, um, you know, while it's fantastic and he's a father of girls, how it's fantastic that um, you know, girls, there's been so much work into creating equity and um, you know, possibilities for girls. The fact of the matter is that we have also created a lot of pain and and this is a very complex subject. And I know, you know, Michael himself has certainly taken a lot of hate for focusing on boys uh, because it feels like, are you kidding? You're going to worry about white boys, um, which, I, you know, I certainly understand. And yeah, this is why we need to worry about white boys because this is a problem and it's, it's not... Um, not to the exclusion of anything else, we're all connected. And so, you know, when we're looking at this and we're saying 95% of these people are white boys, why is that, is it because they're white? No, there's plenty of white people who aren't going around killing people. Is it because they're boys? No, there's plenty of boys who aren't going around killing people. There's something about these boys who become extremely depressed, deeply alienated, are not having good family relationships, not good school relationships, unable to become a teenager, unable to sustain relationships, unable to succeed academically, unable to grow and almost wind up growing like backwards. It's true. It's,
2: But here's the problem. I mean, we were just recently teenagers, weren't we, Missy, Abigail?
0: No. I, I mean, not yeah. that recent, but yeah.
2: <laughs> I mean... Well, I don't feel
1: much different on the inside than I did back then.
2: And you don't look much different.
1: Thank you. you
2: but too. you remember part of this whole isolation, identity, depression, part of it's normative. And I yes, find it absolutely. so hard to
1: disentangle that. I mean, we are all women, but I do remember feeling enormous rejection. And not, like I was not part of, you know, the group a lot of the time and, and feeling shame and, and being weird and, and, and people didn't like me or I was too tall or too awkward or too this or too that. And what ended up happening for me, you know, was that I I was like, oh, I, what do I want? Oh, well, fuck this. What do I want to do? And it's uh, obviously this is, and this is something that both of you can address. Like when you're, how old was this recent shooter? Was he 18? 18. He was 18. So when, you know, obviously our brains are, at that age are are still not formed. We're still um we're still not able to make completely rational decisions and understand that there is a future b- beyond it. And so why?
2: You know, the male brain develops even later than ours, um, twenty-five to twenty-six years old before the prefrontal right. cortex is all oh, holy shit. Yeah. Okay. So I think I think you guys are Abigail. Like what you talk about it being a boy. There's a couple of things that make us different, right? Like we have, we're relational. Us girls, we're always chatting and working things out and telling everybody working everything.
1: Working things out, yeah.
2: And we're not nearly as physical. You most the, obviously speaking in broad strokes. There's incredibly physical girls, but as a population, we're generally less physical and less violent. Than our male counterparts, not individually, but as a population statistic, we are less physically violent. So it it begs that question of what are we, what, why is it manifesting like this? What are we seeing in these boys, and why are they choosing this outlet? Why doesn't this exist anywhere else?
1: You know, I I know you can speak on this, Abigail, but the one thing I wanted to just throw in here um, is I've been recently reading Brene Brown's book. Um, um, daring greatly and I just read uh, it's so much about shame and women in shame and I just read the chapter about men in shame and how um how early on like a toddler boys are able to cry and be this but by by once after you're a toddler you know once you get into school there's a little bit and I don't know how much of it is a lot of it is in the family a lot of it is the coaches a lot of it is but the, Friends, but you're not not allowed to be anything but like don't be a pussy, you know. Go either go out and steamroll or don't. And it's, so I don't think that they are able to talk to each other. I think that I think you're right about this. Like you know, we girls are have had a wonderful few decades where we've been able to. Keep the qualities that we have that make us fucking awesome, you know, like relating to each other and talking it out, and da da da. But in addition, we've also been able to um, have some more masculine qualities and and be seen as more equals. But I don't think that men or boys have been able to, and and some some. Some families, yes, and in some schools, and yes, in friend groups, but I think there's still a lot of the country where the fathers are shut the fuck down. They're so, I mean, and and the men and the, so the boys are kind of in that place too.
0: You know, it's an interesting conversation because I also see a whole other side of this problem, which um, is almost the opposite, which is that there is this glorification as well, though, of... You know, what is, you know, and again, this gets very complicated very quickly. And I, I wanna make a statement, which is to say that not everyone um, feels in their body that gender is the correct construct for them, okay? Um, and, and I really want to deeply uh, acknowledge that, that there are some people who are non-binary, some people who are gonna feel They're actually, you know, not in the proper gender on the outside. Yes. Um, And so there's going to be gender dysmorphia for some people, or simply a very clear expression that they actually identify across the divide, so to speak. And yet, I also do want to say that I think there is a reality to the differences. Again, if you look at brain scans, there are different ways that our brains develop from a typical, right? And approximately 80% of the brain scans apparently show these differences. And so, you know, uh, from a typical perspective, a female brain is going to be more verbal and yes, less physical and, you know, more mirror neurons and, you know, more, that means more empathy, right? And um, all sorts of things and actually, I would argue, Missy, that one of the things is, is we're not making enough room for boys to be boys, that we've made it wrong for boys to be boys. And and, and I want to be very clear again, not all boys are going to express that way. Not all girls are going to express that way, but there is a culture of shame around being a boy who doesn't want to talk about your feelings, who doesn't want to be vulnerable, who isn't maybe that verbal. And that, you know, this idea that like, all boys should be able to cry, sure, of course, yes, absolutely, and all boys should also be able to not cry if they don't want to cry, just as all girls should. And the way that this comes in is that you you get something um, that's known as the preschool to prison pipeline which is a child enters preschool and they're very physical, they can't sit down. Um, And again, we have to look at the prevalence of ADHD. We have to look at what's going into that. We have to look at, you know, the world is very changed. Even our nutrition, the amount of nutrition that we're getting, um, you know, the lack of fish that we're eating. I mean, there's, there's so many different areas that affect our brain, the myelination, our gut, there's just, you know, we all have Roundup glyphosate in our bodies now, okay? we The idea that these things aren't affecting our body and our brain, we now know there's a gut-blood-brain barrier um, that we absolutely need to be addressing from a health perspective. So there's so many different factors going in. So now you've got a little boy, typically it's a boy, if you go into any preschool classroom, it's typically a boy. Sometimes there will be a girl like this for sure, but it is typically a boy. And you ask the preschool teachers and you say, who gives you the most trouble? Okay. Typically, there will be a couple of boys who can't sit down. They can't stop moving. They're like talking with their hands, is what it's called. And they get in trouble. And they get sent home and they get kicked out of school and they don't get dealt with. They don't get understood. They don't get helped. They get marginalized. And it starts there because now the parent is out of work. And now the parent can't work because they can't get their kid into school. And then they get them in another school. And now the parent is saying, don't do anything today because you can't get kicked out. I can't handle this. And now the parent-child relationship is getting ruptured. And sometimes they're in court with another parent that they're already breaking up with. And now they have to prove, oh my gosh, I can't keep my child in court. Now it's showing up that I'm a bad parent. And so all of this stress is happening. The schools can't handle it because they're underfunded and the teachers are unprepared for this. They don't know how to help the boys actually succeed. And now we've got a lot of boys, especially boys, failing out of school. And I'm talking preschool. This is an absolute epidemic. Now, if you have the finances to be able to handle this, if you can homeschool, if you've got the education to be able to handle it, a job structure, a family structure, the economics, maybe you make it through that you're missing any of those things, you're screwed.
1: Yes. I I hear you. And I do think, I mean, so to me, that's, that's a huge issue. There's also another component to that, which is that as a nation, and I know I see this happening in other nations as well, we are so divided on... Like what you just said before that about like that you know boys should be able to cry or choose not to cry. So we're seeing so much friction and so much anger toward allow you know allowing this idea of you know non binary people. I don't. I think there's a huge reaction to that, and it's becoming impossible to just to have a conversation. And I, I wonder how that's affecting the children as well yeah you know that that like they see the grown-ups being like you this person is a fucking idiot and this person's you know I mean everyone is like there's no chance for us to even have a minute to think about what you're thinking about like I I love to hear other people's ideas and to be able to be told you know what you're thinking and if we can kind of actually listen to each other without. Immediately being like you're, well, you're a fucking idiot because you have all this, and and so much. They're they've grown up. These kids are now grown up on the internet, and where a lot of people, what is the, the troll culture of which yeah. is just the worst thing you can think of to say to somebody. And I think. I think we've gotten so cruel and so angry that yeah. that I think that that could be also the underlying sort of just like, I mean, I know I feel it. I think we all kind of just feel this rage.
0: Well, I think we don't have the ability anymore to hold opposites. We right. don't know how to hold two things at once. That there actually can be a difference between boys and girls. And that some people aren't going to identify with either one of those. And we do just as much harm when we say there is no gender reality at all. There's no reality to it. It's just as harmful, I think, personally, to say that as it is to say, you have to be whatever your physical body is expressing itself as. You know, every human being has their own story. You literally don't know someone else's experience. We don't.
1: And now we're going to take a word from our sponsor, BetterHelp. Specifically, we're talking about burnout, and I feel like uh, I've been experiencing a lot of burnout and um, fatigue, and like emotional fatigue. The world is really hard right now. There's a lot of a lot of things that we are um, dealing with that seem insurmountable. Um, And life in general can be overwhelming, and people are burned out without even knowing it. So what are the symptoms? Some of them can include lack of motivation, irritability, and fatigue. And I feel like most of us associate burnout with work, but that's not the only cause. Obviously, many of our roles in life as parents can lead us to feel burned out. So BetterHelp is an online therapy that wants to remind you to prioritize yourself Talking with someone can help you figure out what's causing stress in your life. I actually am talking to somebody once a week and it's extremely helpful for me just to get it out, you know, like, a, and then I feel better. BetterHelp is customized online therapy that offers video, phone, even live chat sessions with your therapist. So you know you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. And it's much more affordable than in-person therapy. And you can be matched with a therapist in under 48 hours. I know that right now people can feel overwhelmed and it's like, I want to do that, but what if I don't get the right person? Well, you can continue um, until you find the right person for you. And right now, our listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com slash raising. That's Better, dot com slash raising. Don't wait. Just go ahead and just jump online and check it out and um, find someone that you can talk to.
2: And I think it's you, we struggle when we address issues like this by saying, okay, it's mainly male. That is not to suggest everyone is binary. It's to say for, for what we can look at, what we can obviously identify in these groups, And you hit on both of you hit on this as well is we're we're noticing that they are appear to be biologically male, they are feeling isolated. You just touched on social media. Can you imagine how much more social media contributes to that than when we were growing up? You see, everyone's together, everyone's doing something fun. You're the weirdo, you don't know why, you're not getting invited. So it's it's I, I know what you're saying, like this whole hesitation to talk about things in terms of sex but we can say it like you say it can be true all of the research we've done for centuries is going to go out the door if we cannot divide or appreciate that some sex differences exist they do they just do and not everybody identifies with those groups and not any not on like some of that's biological too you take a fetus a male a fetus with an x and a y and you bathe it in a hormone called CAH, you're going to get a a very different child, a child with traits that are opposite of what their biological sex is. A lot of this non-binary, a lot of this identification is biological. It is. and, And that's a shame that people assume
1: it's psychological, but it's not. Can you help me understand what you just said the hormone the bathing a hormone and
2: there there are women they studied who for one reason or another were exposed to extreme levels of
1: CAH
2: that for one reason or another I don't remember the circumstances but these women pregnant were exposed oh, to okay. too much of it okay and the the outcome is the biologically female children, I believe, took on more male traits and vice versa. So my suggestion was just that I don't know much about um, gender differences, gender fluidity, non-binary, I don't know much about it. But I do cringe when people talk about it being solely a psychological um, phenomenon or issue or gender identity, because I believe some of it does occur naturally in biology that you are not yeah, necessarily it's also in
0: the, the animal kingdom. It's not just humans, right? So we know this that it is a naturally occurring biological phenomenon. And, you know, I think it's high time that we make room for that among humans. And we can also take a look and go, there is a different kind of male experience for some people. And the people who so far are doing these shootings are male. And we need to be able to look at that and go, why? What is happening specifically for these males? That and and, and I do think you know talk about Brene Brown, right? It, part of it is this glorification of what is that toxic male world, right? So this glorification of a gun world, um, you know, certainly you know, FPS video games, right? We're, we're glorifying that, and yet. Again, there's millions and millions and millions of people playing that and very few people acting upon it. And there's plenty of people who have guns and very few people going around mass shooting. So that also becomes a problem. Do we say, well, the problem is the video games? Well, the problem is the guns? Okay, well, do we say that the problem isn't that? Like The reality is, and I defy any of you who have an angry child or an angry toddler Would you put a knife next to them? No. Every parent knows that if your child starts screaming hysterically and going after their sibling and there happens to be a sharp knife on the table, you'd probably subtly move that. How dare you subtly move that and yet be unwilling to put a law in place, right? Why do you do it? Why do you do it in your home? Because you know. Because In the moment of rage, when a person is not thinking, if I can have easy access to a weapon or I don't have easy access to it, and it doesn't have to be a knife, it could be a fucking wooden toy car. You take it out of the toddler's hand because you know they're gonna beat you with it because they're not thinking. You take it out of the 10-year-old's hand because you know they're going after their sibling and they're not thinking. But somehow we're like, no, you have to be able to allow them a gun, which is a whole other level. On a legal level, the Second Amendment is only being looked at partially. Like you have the right to bear arms, but for what purpose? Right for uh, what is it? A well-regulated militia. Militia, like yeah. a musket.
1: And there was this. Uh, I'm trying to remember the name. Do either of you know of the Supreme Court ruling that happened? I think it was in 2008 yeah. Yeah. about the Second Amendment, and it 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 changed the idea from it being a militia to a personal protection. Correct. Which it was never meant to be personal protection, and yep. then 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 the NRA sort of just ran with it. And what what I think is making everybody fucking crazy is this idea that 90% of people want... I mean, now we're going into gun laws, if that's okay for one second. I'd like to discuss of, this. Well, 90% of the the uh, American population is like, yes, stricter gun laws, yes, background, universal background checks, yes, me, you know, uh, screenings for mental health, yes, yes, yes. But it gets stalled in Congress. I mean, not in Congress, in, in the Senate, because of... Well, I'm sure both. But because of the power, the lobbyists, the money that the NRA is—like, what's going on at the NRA? Like, what—didn't It's you say this, Michelle, that it has to—the change has to come from within the NRA? We need to be fucking putting pressure on them. My feeling is that—so I've started talking to
2: uh, members I know from the NRA saying, well, what—you think it's mental health? Great. I think it's this. Great. What are you willing— to change. Just give me a little something that you're willing to go back to your friends and your group and your local NRA and suggest. What are you willing to put into this? You don't have to believe it's going to change anything. And I know it's a slippery slope, so you don't want to give anything, but these are your children too. So what are you willing to give? And I am speaking, my ex boyfriend owned a company called Turner's Outdoorsman, which I, I expect hate mail for this, but I was 18 um it was the largest gun dealers in the western united states lovely family and i have um i'm reaching out to him to say give it to me tell me the one thing that you'd be willing to do and and that's where i think it has it has to come from them because otherwise if they give us what we want they're feeling like they've stepped onto a slippery slope and they have to hang on to every right with the gun that we have to pry out of their cold dead hands because it's just, it's not about them really caring so much about a particular assault rifle. It's giving in.
0: So here's what I don't understand is like we have freedom of speech, but we've decided to curtail it in certain circumstances, right? We have the right to bear arms again for a well-regulated militia to provide our safety This is now clearly at a point where it is not providing safety. It is making most Americans feel deeply unsafe. This was never imagined that somebody would go in. I mean, and and that's the other thing that I want to talk about here is the timelessness of these laws. Like, why are we, and I don't understand this for the life of me, trying to keep restructuring based on what somebody wrote hundreds of years ago in a world that was completely different, slave owning, women had no right to vote. We're supposed to keep saying, well, we've got to sit to this, let's stick to this letter of this law that was written back then that has no understanding of the internet, of children, of mass murder. Do you think if they had seen this, if they, in 1776, <laughs> were watching somebody go into a little schoolroom and murder children, that they would have been like, yes, this is what we meant by the right to bear arms?
2: It's baffling.
0: It's baffling. Well, so... That
1: this is to me the biggest problem in our country is our government is uh is is an antiquated form and it's by it's you know um two par- a two-party system, which is it doesn't work I mean it just isn't working. The idea that I was listening to another podcast in HR eight, which is this this um bill to create a universal background check so it would it would end these like, you know, I buy a gun on the internet and some dude meets me in the parking lot and hands me a gun with no background check, no nothing. So at HR 8 has been on the Senate, it passed Congress, it's been on the Senate floor and um, I was listening to a podcast called Last Day. So this is from the episode that I listened to yesterday Ninety, Like 90% of Americans are in favor of it and 50 senators have refused to sign it. And this is two years. So I feel like we, you know, just this idea of nothing is getting done and it's all being, you know, filibustered. And you know, it doesn't make any sense to me. It makes me want to fucking rip my hair out because... It, what can we do i mean it's and, and our attention span is like we have so much else to think about and like 3 days later we're all like sort of figuring our shit out but
0: i think this concept of political homelessness that has been coming up over and over again uh, that i've noticed people talking about feels so accurate to me i can't, can't find it. myself in any system because mm. my values are too fundamentally um different on some level like there's no place where I fully feel in alignment. And I keep saying to my husband, like, why can't we just, like, all vote on ideas? Like, why can't we all, like, get rid of this whole party system, get rid of all of it, yes, and actually, like, care about what Americans think based on specific ideas? But the point is, are we all—we're not all— um, versed in this. There's so much that I don't understand. So uh, all of a sudden I've got to right. make my vote known on a transportation bill that I don't understand how it's going to impact everybody. So so yeah, okay, so we need politicians. And so you get into this place where you're just like stuck between a rock and a hard place. Um, but I, this whole, uh, the way our country is run, to me, I don't know, do you feel represented? Do you as a human feel represented? anywhere in your country? I I feel like most politicians should be in one of my studies. I mean, I I feel (laughs) like
2: they're so different. I mean, they're so high in psychopathy, so many of them. I mean, just to put yourself out there to be the type of person who could handle that election, who could handle having everything you've ever done. Being a politician in and of itself, of course, I think a lot of them go in because they do want to represent us. They do share our ideals but those get weeded out, right? What you
1: just said like I I am a very empathetic person. I'm highly sensitive to a fault. Um I will get on my Instagram, I have about 70,000 followers and I, one day I'll just be like I really just want to say something, but I'm scared to say anything because there's always one or two comments that are so fucking mean that I think that I delete the whole thing. And I I think like if I were cuz I would love to be a politician. Uh, I would love to go out there on one level you know what i mean if i if I could still be a good mom i i could see doing it I could see stomaching a lot of the pain and the misery that's going on in the world but i cannot stomach the personal punching at you constantly like the way that it's so dirty and so messy and so mean spirited the way that like somebody comes in and it's like the politics of just exposing their flaws so
0: that they're out. Well, that's the thing I was going to talk about is I think the problem is I really do feel like we're all this like dysfunctional family. Like it feels to me like most of America feels like children of a really horrible divorce. Like we're all sitting here. We can't pick sides. We feel horrified you feel so helpless. You're just watching, you know, your quote right. unquote, parents fight. And neither side feels clean. And you just kind of go, I-, "I don't know. I guess I'm just going to wait this out till I can escape, and I'm eighteen. You know? I-, I really feel like we are all traumatized and or so many of us. you know, there are some people fighting very distinctly for one parent or the other. But I think, So many of us are caught in the middle, and there is this tremendous learned helplessness and this panic, and just like, well, I hope it's not me. I hope it's not me that gets shot. I hope it's not my kid that commits suicide. I hope it's not, you know, and I say this and it's like horrifying. Yeah, it's horrifying. It's horrifying. After Sandy Hook, I could not eat for days. I just remember thinking every time I would open the refrigerator, I was like, I can't bear to eat. How could I possibly eat when these people have lost their children? And now it's like, there's another one, and there's another one, and there's another one. And what do we do? So
1: I think we, with our time left, um, we should talk about that. I think that we are a very powerful said this on your podcast when we were talking, Michelle, but the idea that like I feel paralyzed by it. I can't even, you know, I, I can listen to just little pieces of the information about what actually happened. And then it it's just like, well, fuck me. And how do I send my kid to school and tell her she's safe? So what, what do we do? And I know we don't have like a list of resources here, but we do have... Google and we do have and I do think I was what I was saying as I said on your podcast was the idea that like whatever you think the issue is, there are many sides to it and every side of it needs action and it needs our action. What you said um, earlier, Abigail um, about these kids, these the preschool to prison, track I is, was really like almost I almost couldn't listen to it because I was like well what, I don't know how you fix that but um if if that is where you think you can help or want to help like figure out a way to to be in that if that speaks to you if that if you have friends or family or children that are in that arena you know like let's let's just let's bring some light to it let's take the shame off of it if you think it's about gut and control, you know there's so many uh, different areas. There's also billion-dollar corporations who have a lot of money to give, and we can reach out to them. And I think a lot of a lot of a lot of organizations are doing something about it. Um, and if you think you know it's mental illness, it's uh, there's so many. Then go work on that. Go work on that. Don't sit here and get, get stuck arguing whose fault it is, because I think it's everybody's fault.
2: And then nothing gets done nothing gets done. I'm talking to a woman on uh, my podcast next or Friday, who is taking a grassroots measure. I think I may have mentioned this to you yesterday on mine, but she is um, working on getting training. And we talked about this, it's overwhelming for the teachers, like they don't need to learn. Now they're responsible for picking out the potential shooter, but she's doing something. She's doing something. And I think that point is really, it's it's really poignant. It's You know, it's I I study crime for a living. I've seen everything there is to see. I still have not read one article about this Uvalde killing. I cannot look at one little face. I cannot do it. What does that mean? If I've seen I've been in I've seen dead bodies. I've seen murder victims. I've worked on these cases. I've been face to face with their butchers. I've interviewed their families. I cannot look at these kids. What does that mean? That means that we have become we're so blind. It's like, oh, God, thoughts and prayers, thoughts and prayers, thoughts and prayers. All right, back to my laundry, back to this. I, I don't know what it's going to take. I, I My hat is off to the the politicians who are willing to to piss their constituents off. They are willing to make other people angry. But the fact we've had two elementary school shootings at, at this, we've had lots of high school shootings, but two where they're little babies who still need their bottoms wiped practically and we're just going to be
0: okay with it and move on. That's I mean, the that. idea that we're okay with middle school or high school shootings is insane. The idea we're okay with anything a church, a fucking nail salon, a you know, a, a supermarket. A gay bar. It's like a concert. A concert, uh, right? Like none of this is okay. And to me, I I, I think you know, yes, exactly, Missy, what you were saying. We all need to do something and every single one of you, every one of you listening has some power and it may be in, you know, like what Michelle you're doing, you're calling your ex-boyfriend, like fucking call your ex-boyfriend, fucking call your ex-girlfriend, call anybody, you know, get in touch and I think this is the thing that we have lost and this is the thing that these children don't have that I think is crucial is we have lost the ability to be a community. We somehow th- have decided that individualization um, and individualism is so much more important, and and people deserve their privacy. And a family struggling, you know, don't don't look, don't talk, you know. Um, and and listen, it's complicated. It is deeply complicated, but if if anybody in those schools had stepped in to figure out why was this child getting bullied if there had been therapy for him if he had been able to work out what's it like to have a relationship with a girl instead of stalk her online and send her terrifying pictures of a gun and wonder why you're not getting asked out on a date you know like like if there had been somebody there to help him succeed maybe he wouldn't have had to fail so hard and you know are there layers of this there's the there's the family there's um so much there's there's the family and a history of crime in that family so they're they're used to having th- those kinds of issues in their family that's normalized right um it, you know the, the the father couldn't be in possession or the grandfather couldn't be in possession of guns because he had a prior and so he wasn't allowed to have guns in the home so again all of this is related this child is a child who apparently had a, a video of him have with a dead cat in his lap that presumably I guess he had hurt again we know that this is a precursor there were sign after sign after sign and then you've got the parents saying i have no idea this couldn't be my child i'm completely flummoxed by this so so how do we have that how do we have parents who have no idea and then a child Who's clearly, when you look back on it, is there a mental health track record? I don't know. I don't know if they've dug into the juvenile uh, record yet and and publicized that. When last I was looking into that, they hadn't publicized the juvenile record yet. If there was one, I don't know that there ever was one. Um, but certainly, as an adult, he didn't have a mental health track record. Um, but but you know, if, even in the face of that not being there, there were signs there were signs. Absolutely. If you had asked any one of those kids like a couple months earlier, who's the kid you think would be most likely to do this? I bet you a good percentage of those kids would have said that kid. Okay? So how do we do this? Because we certainly don't want to create witch hunts Or we're just asking kids. And yet we also need to, as communities, step up and go, I know this kid is in trouble. I know this family's in trouble. How do we get them help without persecuting them? How do we get them help without making them wrong? How do we get them help without terrifying them? You know, what if, you know, people are... are, whatever, there's something else going on. They have a prior conviction. Maybe they're not legal immigrants in certain cases. Like, how do we help people without terrifying them? How do we help people without terrifying them that we're gonna take away their kids? Or maybe sometimes we need to. I mean, these are huge, giant questions that don't have easy answers, and I'm not pretending they do. But every single one of us has some place in that we can make some movement, whether that's just, hey, maybe we should have a grade-wide get-together and notice who never shows up. Maybe we should bring food over. Maybe we should go check in on those parents and just like check in, give them somebody to talk to. Maybe we should, you know, I don't know, like figure out, like instead of just looking at people and watching them fall, because when, when they fall, some of them are gonna come back and say, fuck you. Yep.
2: Well, what if, you just hit on something that I've never thought of and I had not thought this through, but what do you ladies think of this? What if what if there's programs built into school? Like we had one in high school called Bridge and it's like anyone who's having struggles comes in, they have peer, we, we talk about it as peers. What if there's that set up in the school already? That there's just, there are groups of, of of kids who are on this bridge, this kind of like just friend, counselors, peer counselors, you go anytime and- this might not work, but w- just hear it out. What if anonymously, once a month, everyone fills that exact question out? Like, who do you think struggling? Who do you think could use a friend? Who do you, who you maybe a little afraid of? Who have you seen put up something a little dangerous or weird on social media? Anonymous stays anonymous. And, but when they're going through whatever system that they have put in place to help kids, that maybe there's a little bit of, you know, someone, Someone's paying attention to that kid now, not a witch hunt, not contacting their parents, but just beyond notice, pay a little bit more attention and maybe provide some help. I love
0: that idea. And the the other side of this is we need people who are trained in helping people who are falling, Mm. right? That's huge because otherwise it does just become a witch hunt or it becomes punitive, which has the exact opposite reaction. I mean, this is the work that I do, right? is I help parents who have kids who are struggling and I help them turn it around because what happens, and this is a very critical piece of this. So when we're talking about preschool to prison pipeline, okay, and this is a crucial thing for parents to understand. So even if you're only gonna help in your own families, okay, because we we sit here and we're like, oh, is my child gonna, God forbid, get targeted? What if our child is the child targeting, okay? What if you have a child who falls through? And believe me, no parent is above this. Okay, children can go really deep, really dark. All right, that's just a reality. And, you know, even wonderful parents, again, like we talked about with suicide, there are families that are super close, and all of a sudden, it's just out of nowhere. That our kids, as they get older, as they're teenagers, they are engaged in a world that you can't know everything they're doing, it's not possible. And I speak as two teenagers, as a mother who's deeply involved, okay? You can't. There comes a point where they have their own life. You don't You don't know what your spouse or co-parent is doing all the time either, by the way. Like, if people want to have a private life, they will, right? So the reality is we have a lot of work to do, just like we talked about on your podcast, right, Michelle? And for those of you who haven't listened to the to How Jerry is a Serial Killer, uh, the episode that we all did on Michelle's podcast... Um, definitely that is also part of this conversation, the zero to three and making sure we zero in on those years. But, But a big piece of this is that parenting is a political act and we don't talk about it that way. But parenting in and of itself is a political act. So if you are a parent, you have a say in how you're helping your child process, in helping make sure that you aren't just using punitive systems because children who are again, maybe this one in a hundred, right? Who's pathological, but we have kids who are just demand avoidant temperaments. We have kids who are strong willed. We have kids who are highly sensitive and all of those children are not going to do well with a punitive setup. So kids who are very neuro normative do better. You tell them, I don't like that. And they go, oh, sorry. And they fix it. But I can tell you from personal experience as a mother of a child who's very strong-willed and another child who is highly sensitive, my kids don't run that way. And if I had maintained that kind of parenting, I would not have a line-in to my 15-year-old. There's no way, right? Any sort of limit with him is very difficult. And so I've had to learn to build deep relationship with him, had to work with him, had to help turn his brain on, you know, even little things. Like last night he came to me at ten twenty. 20. He's like, so I've got this final. Um, I've done, you know, like a third of it. I've still got like two and a half paragraphs to write, but I really want to play Minecraft. And I was like, okay. Uh, and I know that if I say no, I'm in trouble. And so I say, well... What do we do? Let's talk about this. How often do you have the final twice a year? How often do you get to play Minecraft? Pretty much every day. So how big of a deal is it not to play it today? It's a huge deal. <laughs> <laughs> how'd, you, really? how'd, you, how'd you wiggle out of that? <laughs> really? You freaking 15 year old, really? <laughs> and you know, that's what you're dealing with. Like, let's be clear. That's the 15 year old brain, especially of a strong willed kid who also has interests like video games. Okay. And I'm sure there's plenty of parents who can relate. All right. So the reality is you have to know how to deal with a kid to get them to make better choices, how to not be too punitive, because the moment I was like, no, he immediately starts being like, well, I shouldn't tell you anything. And then it's like, all right, I'm not going to say no. I'm going to help you figure out what you want to do. And, you know, that's a whole other complicated discussion I won't go into, but ultimately we were able to get him to just focus on the essay. But, but it's not an easy task when you have a child like this. And that starts like right away from toddlerhood, right. Or before that, even, you know, that's a temperament. And so for those of you who have kids who have that temperament, if you are punitive with them, if, if all, and, and don't trust me on this, just see from your own life. If you're punitive with kids like this, they will get very, very difficult very quickly. They will tunnel under. They will get depressed or they will hate you. Those are the two ways it goes. It's either rage towards me or rage towards you in society. And so these are the children that are highly sensitive that we have to protect and raise with our values and raise with love and that whole normal paradigm of parenting of like, I just tell you what I don't like and there's consequences does not work for children like this. So if we could just alter that paradigm of parenting and then alter the way teachers are dealing with kids who can't listen, that would go a long way to helping these children too.
1: So um, if I could just throw my two cents in here too, I really liked both of those things. Michelle, what you were talking about in the schools, you know, like having this idea of, of a safe space where you could go, you know, and, and Abigail also just like understanding how force works with children. I feel like the, for those of you who are looking for something to do, you know, there's, I, I, I feel like what's, what I've really begun to think is how much I would like to myself, you know, I know that I've in, in searching for a counselor even for myself, it's a very tough world right now because everybody's looking for somebody. And I feel like if you have any interest in studying, you know, that that as a field, like you could you could do so much work. You could, you know, you could, there's a million places to find, I mean, it's hard to say which ones are the best, but to learn how to be a counselor yourself, you could, you know, to learn how your child's brain is working. To, those are things that that are so much more easier for us to to learn right now than they ever have been in the world. And like, you know, there's that aspect of it. And then this idea too, of like what you said, Abigail, about like getting to know the parents of your children, I have a WhatsApp group with my kids' parents and I noticed that sometimes it's just like when you know that somebody is struggling and and we we are all afraid that our kid is going to do something scary. I mean, I, who is not afraid that, you know, that their kid is going to be the one that hurts someone or it, it's the idea of us kind of like being like, "Oh, yeah, I know that feeling," so that we can kind of open up for each other and give each other you know, and, and open that dialogue up to our kids so that we're not so like, that kid's weird, but just like, Hey, I see you're struggling. How can we get our kids to be able to look at each other and see somebody who's maybe struggling and just, you know, I have this story that my friend told me, uh, she, this is a long time ago and she was at school and there was a kid that came in and had a paper bag on his tray or his desk and it was homeroom and, and she was like, how are you doing? And and he he was kind of defensive. She was like, oh, you brought lunch or something. And she just talked to him about like, and she's like, I had such a shitty morning. And I didn't get, you know, my mom didn't pack my lunch. She started talking to him and asked him some questions. And, uh, and later that day, he was taken out of school. There was a gun in his lunch bag. You oh know, and she opened up to him and just was like, t- treated him like a normal person, like how can we do that? How can we kind of just see people and teach our children to see people instead of be like, that weirdo, I don't want to be next to that guy, you know? Wow. That kind of stuff.
2: And for a parent level, please stop telling everyone your child's perfect. First of all, we know your child's not perfect. Yeah. and 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 it's annoying because I want to open up about my children. Yeah. I want other moms to lean yeah. on. But I have so many mom peers who are just like, I just got lucky. Mine are just easy. I'm like, I just... Literally saw your kid hit his sibling. I just saw it. Like yeah. there's this idea that it's a reflection on who you are, but can, if we can destigmatize that yes. kids can be really hard.
1: They're, yes. really, they're so sociopaths until yeah, they're we train them not to be. And sometimes we don't have all the right tools no. and no. Don't be afraid to ask for help and don't be afraid to give it to someone, you know. And let's teach our kids to resources. be more empathetic.
0: Yeah, yeah. I, I want to say also, you know, your story, Missy, it, it really reminds me of things. You guys, one of the most powerful things that we have that every single one of you can give to somebody is hope. Mm-hmm. Literally, it changes lives. So what you can do, like, it doesn't take that much. Like, it, it, the thing is, is when people have hope, They're not gonna go off and kill people because they actually have something to hope for for themselves. It it creates a future event horizon. But if you've had nothing but shit and you feel like your life is never gonna go anywhere good, it's much easier if you have access to a gun and you've got other stuff going on to be able to go, fuck it, all right? But if you actually have hope, if if somebody had come up to this child, let's say, I don't know, a month before. And uh been able to help him, like, I don't know, apply for a job that he was interested in, or figure out that he's brilliant with whatever and we're gonna train you to be so great at this, or you know, a relationship that had bloomed, somebody's much less likely to hurt people. And that's the thing, is like, it's not about singling people out and making them feel bad for who they are it's actually about giving hope and giving opportunity to people because when people have hope and opportunity they don't go around hurting people so who can you give hope to who can you give opportunity to right who do
1: you who do you notice that you just kind of ignore and give them a little attention yeah hey how you doing oh I like your jacket what made you choose to do I don't know you know just attention
2: and kids can learn that. Kids can yeah. learn to like look for a lonely friend. They're much better at it when they're younger than when they're teenagers. But, yeah, you know, that's true. I I a quick anecdote similar to your story, Missy. There are moments that change outcomes like that. Um, I've heard a suicide victim say that. He said, if no one smiles at me today or nobody talks to me, I'm doing it. Uh, the beginning of the pandemic, my children and I were on a walk with some friends. We said goodbye to our friends. We're crossing a bridge and I've got my dog and my my he was seven and she was nine or six and eight and there's a man sitting on the bridge about to jump wow. and I'm like okay big decision to make right now I've got my tiny children but this man's gonna jump and cars are just going joggers are just jogging I'm the like the most vulnerable of everybody because I got the kids but I'm like okay kids something big's about to happen that man's not okay. You're going to take. You're gonna go back to the car. If you don't find the car of our friends, you're going to find the first adult you see and you're going to call 911 and you're going to leave mommy here and you're not going to ask me questions. You're going to do this. And they both are like, got it. They knew what was going on. They saw it. Is he going to jump? Nice. I said, yes, he is. Let's go. Let's go. So I started talking to him. I, long story short, this is doesn't matter how it happened, but it got on the bridge with him. I got on the edge with him. I got him down. He was fine. My kids went and told their playmates that their 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 schoolmates this online it was pandemic that story is now circulated through the school and it I have kids talking to me all the time oh I saw somebody who was sad oh oh you know Charlotte's mom I saw somebody who was sad and I talked to them I, I was worried they were kill themselves I didn't mean for it to go viral that way in the school but it, to watch them see like they felt heroic they felt like they could help somebody wow. can we empower our children that way you know to, to look for it in each other.
0: I think it's so important, and again, we had this conversation on your podcast, and again, I just really want to encourage you guys to go check out that discussion. Um, but the the thing that is so important is to know that we are capable. You don't have to have a degree. You don't have to be a federal employee. Like yeah. We've already, as Missy talked about, been severely let down by people that we've hired to represent us who are not representing us. And we can't allow ourselves to mean that that is, you know, allow that to mean that we are entirely powerless, right? We have to do something and there are things we can each do. Uh, And then just what's, what's one step that you can take? You
1: know what it is or you'll find it Or just ask for guidance. Yeah. And And whatever you do,
0: like maybe you develop apps, develop an app that helps, right? Like whatever your job is, you are a hairstylist. Talk to your people. It's a great place to talk to people. They open up. And smile at someone who looks like they could use it. Smile. And again, if you're a parent, you are a political values machine and you are... Spreading those values, just like in the story you just told, Michelle, you're spreading those values. You are actually like able to affect a next generation. We're, I always say we're holding the next generation in our arms. Let's act like it. All right. On that level of depth. <laughs> uh,
1: thanks for listening, everybody. And we'll have some resources for you on our webpage. Bye. And thank you so much, Dr. Michelle, oh, for thanks being for having here me. with us. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Okay. Bye, friends. Bye. Hey, everybody. We just want to thank you so much for listening. And we
0: hope that we've helped you in some way and that you've really enjoyed this conversation. If you or someone you know is struggling with a parenting problem, contact us using our online form at RaisingAndRising.co. That's raisingandrising.co. Or message us on Instagram at Raising and Rising with your most frustrating parenting questions. We want to help make it better. And if you liked our discussion, make sure to subscribe
1: to Raising and Rising on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts so that you don't miss an episode.
0: And hey, give us an amazing rating because you know you loved it. And for those of you feeling inspired by this parenting conversation, check out motherflippingawesome.com slash help for a way to hop on a call with me and have a conversation about your family. See you next week.
2: Seeking the truth never gets old.